You're listening to the Real Estate CPA Podcast, your source for all things real estate accounting and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to today's podcast episode with Real Estate CPA. I'm your host, Brandon Hall. And whether you're a new or returning listener, we really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen to what we have to share. Today's episode is going to be a different look and feel than what we normally have. I'm flying solo and we won't have a guest. We recently released a 10,000 word web page called The Ultimate Guide to Tax Planning for Landlords and Buy and Hold Real Estate Investors. It has everything that you need, quite literally, if you're a landlord and you're looking for some tax tips. We're going to go over a few of those sections in that guide today. And I'll make sure it's linked in the show notes for all of you to make it easy to click to it. Before we jump into it, if you like the podcast, please give us a shout out on social media and leave us a review on iTunes. I think we're currently sitting at about 84 reviews, most of which are five stars. So a big thanks goes out to all of you who have left us a review so far. And don't forget that we are a CPA firm. We can most certainly help you with tax planning, accounting, and tax preparation. Go to www.therealestatecpa.com and click Become a Client to receive a free 30-minute consultation to figure out if you're a good fit. Tax planning should especially be on top of mind as we get closer to the end of the year. We've helped hundreds of investors recapture tax savings that prior tax preparers totally missed. Like recently, the client that has been using Dad's CPA for over 20 years and Dad's CPA didn't know that cost segregation was a thing we were able to recapture about $5 million in deductions for the clients. And you can imagine how happy the client was at the end of the day. So be like Marie Kondo. Does your CPA bring you joy? If not, get rid of them. So again, if you're interested in some tax planning, go to www.therealestatecpa.com and click become a client. I'd love to look over your situation and see if we can bring you joy. All right, let's get to it. Today, we're going to go over that guide that I talked about, the ultimate guide to tax planning for landlords and buy and hold real estate investors. And specifically, we're going to look at section 10, 11, 12, and 13. So we're going to talk about improvements today and whether or not you can take passive losses. So anytime that you spend money on a rental, especially if it's related to a repair or or some sort of construction or rehab, you have to ask, is this expenditure classified as a repair or is it classified as an improvement? And to get our answer, we have to review the tangible property regulations in the IRS code. But before we do, it's probably important to understand what the difference between a repair and a capital improvement actually is at the end of the day. A repair is an expenditure that is deducted currently. So I get the current benefit in full today. If I spend $5,000 on a repair, I get to deduct the $5,000 today and that reduces my tax liability today. If instead I determine that that $5,000 expenditure should be a capital improvement, then I'm going to have to book it as a capital improvement on my balance sheet. I'm going to have to depreciate it over 5, 7, 15, or 27 and a half years, depending on the type of improvement. 
But if it is a 27 and a half year improvement, now I'm depreciating that $5,000 over 27 and a half years. That means that I'm taking a very small amount this year, a very small amount next year, and a very small amount for the next 27 and a half years. It's not the optimal tax solution. It's not going to save me a ton of money. The net present value for me, generally speaking, it's better to go ahead and deduct everything as repair if I can. But that's why these tests are really important. And these tests are found in the tangible property regulations. And we'll go over those in one minute. So repairs are generally one-time expenses that keep your property in operating condition. To give you examples of what qualifies as repairs, here are some common examples. We've got painting, fixing AC units, leaky plumbing, electrical, patching holes in the wall, replacing cabinet doors, repairing appliances, small things that like a tenant's still going to be in our property. So these are small things and they're not going to make me stop renting the property. My property is still habitable. I'm just making repairs to keep it in operating condition. A capital improvement is an expenditure that increases a property's value, useful life, or adapts it to newer, better uses. So full-blown additions, renovating an entire room, such as a kitchen, installing central AC, new plumbing, replacing 30% or more of a building component like roofs, windows, floors, electrical systems, HVAC, all of that is going to be considered a capital improvement. So if we start looking at the tangible property regulations, we see that there are nine units of property. We have the building structure, the HVAC systems, the plumbing systems, electrical systems, escalators, elevators, fire protection and alarm systems, security systems, and gas distribution systems. When we have an expenditure, we have to decide first which of those nine units of property does the expenditure apply. We must then look at the three safe harbors that come in the tangible property regs. The first safe harbor is the de minimis safe harbor. The second safe harbor is the routine maintenance safe harbor. The third safe harbor is the safe harbor for small taxpayers. If we can't apply any of those three safe harbors, then we have to look to the betterment, adaption, or restoration tests under the TPRs. And we're going to go through all of those right now. So the de minimis safe harbor is found under reg section 1.263A1F. You can use the de minimis safe harbor to deduct up to $2,500 of cost of tangible property used to produce or acquire rental real estate. And the deduction limit, that $2,500, is applied at the invoice level, meaning that you can have an invoice of $10,000 with five items that are each $2,000 a piece, and those could qualify for the de minimis safe harbor. There is an anti-abuse rule that does not allow you to manipulate a transaction to make sure that all costs on the invoice are less than $2,500. For example, if you buy a new HVAC unit and it costs $3,000, you cannot report on the invoice that the motor costs $500, that the casing costs $500, and then that all the additional parts cost $2,000. That's not going to work. They're going to aggregate the total amount. They're going to look at it as $3,000 total for that new HVAC unit, and you won't be able to use the de minimis safe harbor at that point. Many of our clients use the de minimis safe harbor um, every year. They use it very successfully. You do need to make an annual election on your tax returns to make sure that you do that. Our firm does that pretty much by default for our clients. The second safe harbor is the routine maintenance safe harbor. It's found under reg section 1.263A3I. There's no limit on the amount that you can deduct under the routine maintenance safe harbor. Routine maintenance under this safe harbor is work that the landlord performs on a property to keep the building and each of the building systems in operating condition. 
This generally includes inspecting cleaning components and replacing the damaged or worn parts. In order for costs to count under the routine maintenance safe harbor, you have to reasonably expect to perform such maintenance more than once every 10 years. So for example, you might have carpet that you replace every five years. You can deduct the carpet under the routine maintenance safe harbor, even if it's more expensive than the de minimis safe harbor, because you expect to replace that carpet again within a 10-year time frame. So the routine maintenance safe harbor is a really great safe harbor to use. Many of our clients use the routine maintenance safe harbor to deduct costs that they are going to have to incur again within a 10-year period. And the last safe harbor is the safe harbor for small taxpayers. It's found in Reg Section 1.263A3H. It allows real estate investors to deduct all of their repairs and maintenance on a property as long as the property's unadjusted basis is less than $1 million and the total aggregate cost of the repairs, maintenance, and improvements for that property were less than $10,000 or 2% of the unadjusted basis of the building, whichever is less. So the key to this safe harbor is really that $10,000 or 2% of the unadjusted basis of the building, whichever is less. For example, if you have a $1 million property, 2% of the unadjusted basis of $1 million is $20,000. Now, $10,000 is less than $20,000. So even though I have a $1 million property, under this safe harbor, I can only have a cap of repairs maintenance of $10,000 in order to utilize this safe harbor. This safe harbor we've seen used somewhat successfully with uh, mid-sized properties, three, four, $500,000 properties, but not really successfully Otherwise, we, we thought that this safe harbor was going to be a good boon for a lot of our clients, but we haven't really seen it used as successfully as we thought. But many of our clients that do spend less than $10,000 in repairs can generally use this safe harbor relatively successfully, uh, and we do claim that for them. So that's definitely something to keep in mind, especially if you do have one big expenditure during the year. Like let's say you replace your roof and it costs $6,000 and you have a $500,000 building, 2% of $500,000 is $10,000, $10,000 is not less than $10,000. So $10,000 would at that point be your cap. So if you spend six, seven, $8,000 on a roof and you don't have any other repairs and maintenance, you can deduct the cost of the roof. That's the point of this safe harbor for small taxpayers. That's what it allows you to do at the end of the day. Now that we've gone over the safe harbors, we have to kind of just review everything again. So we're going through the tangible property regulations here. And what we're trying to do is figure out, is an expenditure going to be classified as a repair or is it going to be classified as an improvement? And to figure that out, what we first have to do is look at the tangible property regulations and look at the three safe harbors within those tangible property regulations. We just did that. And let's say that we have an expenditure that, you know, we step through each of those safe harbors and we realize this expenditure does not qualify for any of those safe harbors. Then what we have to do next is we have to move on to the Betterment Adaption and Restoration Test, better known as the BAR test. And once we step through the Betterment Adaption Restoration Test, we will know very clearly whether or not this expenditure qualifies as a repair or whether it qualifies as a capital improvement. So the first test is the Betterment Test. An expenditure is going to be considered a betterment if it ameliorates a material condition or defect in the unit of property that existed before it was acquired, if it is a material addition to the unit of property, if it materially increases the size or capacity of the unit of property, or if it materially increases the productivity, efficiency, or strength of the unit of property. Now, I just use the word material a lot, right? I use material addition to the unit of property. Materially increases the size or capacity of the unit of property. Materially increases the productivity, efficiency, or strength of the unit of property. Material in this case generally means 30%. There's no bright line test. 
But that's generally what material means when we're talking about the tax code. And it's generally what tax courts recognize whenever we are referencing the word material. So if you buy a 10-unit apartment complex and you replace two HVAC units, you are affecting the HVAC system, right? The HVAC unit of property. And if all 10 units are in the same building, then that means all 10 HVAC units are on the same HVAC system. So if you only replace two HVAC units out of the 10, you could be considered to have replaced 20% of the HVAC system, thus not constituting a material improvement, a material addition, material increased size capacity, material increase in productivity, efficiency, or strength. You've only hit 20%. You haven't hit that 30% threshold. So two out of the 10 HVAC units, what that means is that if it doesn't qualify as a betterment, we would then look at restoration and adaption. But if it doesn't qualify for all three of those, you can deduct the cost of the two HVAC units. And that's why we like clients that, that buy multifamily property or property with many, many units, whether it's commercial or multifamily. Uh, it allows you a lot of flexibility when it comes to the tangible property regulations in determining how you treat your expenditures each year. So that's betterment. Let's move on to restoration. An expenditure is going to be a restoration if it replaces a material component or substantial structural part of a unit of property or rebuilds the unit of property to like new condition. Many of our clients that are running the Burr strategy have restorations here. So this is where we would stop with the bar test. Uh, we hit the restoration because we're doing a big rehab on a rental property. Um, the, all those costs related to the restoration are generally going, going to be capitalized. However, that same threshold for materialities that applies to betterments, it's going to apply to restorations too. So again, keep in mind that 30% threshold. And that's 30% of the unit of property, right? So if I replace one window, it's not I replaced one window out of 12 windows. It's how does that one window translate into the entire structure, the entire building unit of property. So it does take some analysis but that's kind of what we're looking at here. And then lastly, we have the adaption test. We really don't see this fail very often. Adaption is going to be when you are modifying a unit of property to serve a new or different use that's not consistent with the original ordinary use. Again, we don't really see this that often. Most of our clients buy single-family homes, multifamily homes, commercial properties, and we're not really adapting these to, to uses other than renting them out or leasing them out to tenants. All right. So that was the tangible property regs in a nutshell. Again, all of that is detailed on the ultimate guide to tax planning for landlords and buy and hold real estate investors. Check the show notes for a link to that web page. It's 10,000 words long and we just hit two sections there. The next two sections we're going to jump into kind of build on, on it. And what I mean by that is if we look at the tangible property regulations and we decide that we can deduct a lot of our expenditures as repairs, in years that we have a lot of these expenditures that we can deduct as repairs, we're going to see big passive losses. The next question is, can you deduct the losses that your rentals create? There's a passive activity loss limitation that is available to anybody that actively participates in their rental activities. Active participation is generally defined as making management decisions, being involved with the rental property or managing somebody that is involved with the rental property like a property manager. So you're still making the high-level management decisions. A good example would be most of the time, if you have a rental property that's being managed by a property manager, you are actively participating in that rental property. However, if you invest in a syndication as a limited partner, you're not actively participating in that rental activity. So that kind of is the difference for you. You're not making management decisions. You don't have a vote 
when it comes to how do we manage the property in that syndication. And as a result, you cannot actively participate. You also can't materially participate, which is a different story for a different time. So as long as we are actively participating in the rental activity, we can utilize the passive activity loss limitations. And that allows you to deduct up to $25,000 in passive losses from your rental activities against your ordinary income. And that is as long as your modified adjusted gross income is $100,000 or less. The deduction, the $25,000 deduction, begins to be phased out by $1 for every $2 of modified adjusted gross income above $100,000. So when you hit $150,000, the entire $25,000 of passive loss allowance has been phased out. Again, the deduction is phased out by $1 for every $2 of modified adjusted gross income above $100,000. So this is good news for folks that have modified adjusted gross income of less than $100,000. You you get a $25,000 passive loss allowance for any rental that you actively participate in. It's good news, but not as good of news for folks that have modified adjusted gross income between $100,000 and $150,000. Because while you can't use the entire $25,000 passive loss allowance, you do get to use a portion of it. It just kind of depends on where your modified adjusted gross income is on that scale of $100,000 to $150,000. That's going to determine how much of that $25,000 passive loss allowance has been phased out. But if your modified adjusted gross income is above $150,000, you cannot use the passive loss allowance at all. You have to start getting creative if you want to use your passive losses, or they will be suspended every year and they will be carried forward indefinitely until they can be utilized to offset passive income or gain on the sale of a rental property. There is one exception to that, though, and that's if you qualify as a real estate professional, which we're going to go through next. Most of our clients are above the $150,000 modified adjusted gross income threshold. We find ourselves getting very creative with a lot of our clients trying to figure out how do we deduct the passive losses that their rentals are creating every single year. Because while suspended passive losses aren't that bad, I've talked a little bit about how suspended passive losses give you flexibility in the past on different content and everything. They're not that bad, but we still, from a net present value perspective, we want to utilize those passive losses as much as we possibly can immediately, if at all possible. So if your modified adjusted gross income is above $150,000, you're in the, you've got to get creative space. And part of that creativity could just be qualifying as a real estate professional. That's the easy way out if you can swing it. So let's talk about qualifying as a real estate professional. First things first, the real estate professional is a tax election. So getting your real estate salesperson's license is not going to help you qualify as a real estate professional unless it helps you qualify for the number of hours. But the license itself, the IRS doesn't care. All they're looking at is hours for this tax designation. That's what the real estate professional is for the IRS. It's just a tax designation. You can't go put it on LinkedIn. It's not going to help you. To qualify as a real estate professional, you must spend 750 hours in a real estate trader business and more than half of your time in a real estate trader business compared to all of your other material participation activities. Employment is a material participation activity. So if you spend 2,000 hours with your employment, your W-2 job, you have to spend 2,001 hours in a real estate trader business in order to qualify as a real estate professional. As a result, Most folks that have full-time jobs don't qualify as a real estate professional. 
You can, however, qualify if you have a part-time job. You would need to track your hours at your part-time job. And then you would also need to track your hours working in your real estate trader business to show that you spent more time on your real estate trader business than you did in your part-time W-2 job. A real estate trader business can be real estate sales, development, leasing, construction, or managing a rental portfolio. The problem that I see somewhat often is clients think that once they qualify as a real estate professional, they're good to go. They can deduct all the losses from their rental activities. And that's not the case. There's one more step, and that additional step is called material participation. Without demonstrating that you materially participate in your rental activities, you cannot deduct passive losses from your rental real estate activities. Now, if you hit the real estate professional hour, so remember that 750 hour mark, greater than half of your time, if you hit that with your landlording activities, you will meet the material participation test. You'll be fine. But if you are a real estate agent or broker, or if you are flipping homes, or if you're a real estate developer or wholesaler or property manager, you can qualify as a real estate professional with your property management, with your development, with your flipping, with your brokerage activities, with your leasing activities. You'll be able to qualify as a real estate professional. But the problem is, is that you will not have demonstrated material participation in your rental real estate activities. That's going to be an additional test for you folks. And you're going to have to make sure that you keep a time log that's accurate and that does demonstrate material participation in the rental real estate activities. There's seven tests to material participation. The most common tests that we see our clients use for material participation are spending more than 500 hours on your rental real estate activity. You can combine your rental real estate activities. So that 500 hours is each individual property, unless you aggregate all the properties into one rental activity, which comes with its own set of risks. I do not recommend doing that without having professional advice and without really thinking about the future. But you can aggregate your rental activities into one rental activity and spend 500 hours across your entire portfolio at that point. That's what we see most of our clients that are qualifying as a real estate professional do. So the first test is 500 hours. The second test is 100 hours and more than anyone else. So if you're spending more time than your property manager, you can spend 100 hours and more time than your property manager. And then you don't have to spend the full 500 hours. But if you can qualify as a real estate professional, and if you can demonstrate material participation, then your rental losses will become non-passive and you'll be able to offset your other ordinary income. And that's also true for your spouse's ordinary income. So if you qualify as a real estate professional, then your spouse earns a lot of W-2 income, your rental losses will be able to offset your spouse's W-2 income. So to demonstrate how effective this is, let's say that your spouse earns $300,000 a year. The tax associated with that $300,000 W-2 income stream is probably between ninety dollars to $120,000 a year, depending on where you live. You qualify as a real estate professional. You buy a $1 million apartment building. You then run a cost segregation study and you apply 100% bonus depreciation. And you're probably looking at right around a $300,000 first year deduction. So by you qualifying as a real estate professional and by you materially participating in that $1 million apartment building, running a cost seg study, using 100% bonus depreciation, you can generate a massive first year deduction that is then factored into your overall passive losses. And if you have $300,000 of passive losses, but you qualify as a real estate professional, those losses are now considered non-passive and you get to offset your spouse's W-2 income. So in this example, 
you're probably saving yourself, your family, ninety dollars to $120,000 in taxes every single time that you buy a $1 million apartment building. All right. Well, that's all that we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Again, you can access the guide. It's on our website, but the guide is called The Ultimate Guide to Tax Planning for Landlords and Buy and Hold Real Estate Investors. There's a lot of additional juicy information in there. Again, it's 10,000 words, over 10,000 words long. You can also enter your email address at the beginning of that guide to get a downloaded copy of it. Highly recommend that you do that so you can take it anywhere you go. But this is all free. It's out there for the public. And we really want you to check it out. Give us some feedback on how it looks and how it reads because we spent a lot of time putting this together for all of you. And if you're ever interested in becoming a client or if you're interested in just kind of exploring that tax planning relationship, head on over to www.therealestatecpa.com and click Become a Client. I'd love to have a chat with you and figure out if we can help you out. Again, I'm going to post the link to the Ultimate Guide to Tax Planning for Landlords and Buy and Hold Real Estate Investors in the show notes. So make sure to check that out if you're on the road or listening to this, not at your computer or a place that you can download this right now. You can always come back to the show notes and it will be there for you. Thanks so much, everyone, again, for the listen. I really appreciate it. And I hope that you all have a good rest of your week. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.